The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and taught dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the Lord's name in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down toolhouse. And so begins Barbara Robinson's novel, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. As she describes a fictional family of juvenile delinquents known as the Herdmans. Barbara's book is about the hijacking of the church's annual children's reenactment of the Christmas story. At the first rehearsal, the Herdman kids strong arm the other children to secure the most important roles in the play. When the director of the pageant discovers that the Herdmans have never even heard the biblical account of Christmas, she decides that the first order of business is to read the story. And the Herdman's reaction is hilarious. When the director reads, Mary was great with child, the Herdman's reaction is all a puzzled look comes across their face. The brother Ralph crudely interprets, she means pregnant. When they discover there's no room in the inn, the Herdman's want to know why Joseph didn't belt the innkeeper. They argue about whether he should have set fire to the inn or just chased the innkeeper out of town. They get upset when they hear that the baby was born in a barn. And why in the world did they tie him up with swaddling clothes and make him lie down in a feed trough? One of them even asks, where was the child welfare? And on and on the questions go. Who were these wise men? School teachers? When they hear that one of the gifts was oil, Imogene says... What kind of cheap king would give oil for a present? They even want to know who's playing King Herod so they can beat him up for trying to kill an innocent baby. Barbara finishes, she says, I couldn't understand the Herdmans. You would have thought the Christmas story came right out of the FBI files. Yet ironically, the Herdmans may have had a more realistic idea of the first Christmas than most of us. For in many ways, church folk tend to sanitize the Christmas story. We soften up its harsher, more brutal realities. Author Gary Bauer comments on the first Christmas. The girl was young, just a teenager. She was poor and unmarried and pregnant. Though engaged to a man, the girl admitted her fiancé was not the father of her child. For many, this was a classic problem pregnancy. To compound matters, the girl claimed to have seen visions. She mentioned something about an angel. While on a trip with her fiancé, they found themselves down and out with no place to stay. They were among the homeless. The point is, at the time it happened, the first Christmas looked much different than it does today, after the fact. The sweet, stressless calm seen in most paintings of the stable is as much a figment of our imagination as Santa Claus. Fear and uncertainty and desperation very likely dominated the hearts of Mary and Joseph. Well, as we did last week with Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi, today we want to look at Luke's recounting of the birth of Christ. And as we do, I hope we'll come away with a more accurate, a more realistic view of that first Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 begins. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was one of ancient Rome's most successful emperors. It was said, Augustus came to a Rome made of bricks and left it a city of marble. Augustus' given name was Octavius, but in 27 BC he accepted the title Augustus, or the revered one. Obviously, the man didn't lack for ego. He claimed to be a god. In fact, this census was to demonstrate the vastness of his kingdom and inflate his already bloated pride. He bullies the world with his decree. And yet, ironically, the man who thought he was a god was actually being manipulated by the one true god. For 700 years earlier, the Hebrew prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Which meant, for a moment, God had a problem. Mary was about to deliver her son, and she was in Nazareth, a hundred miles from the God-appointed birth site. A still, small voice wouldn't be enough to prompt Joseph to take his pregnant wife on a three-day donkey ride. Nothing short of a royal edict would move this couple. And yet that is exactly what God arranges. The arrogant Caesar flexes his muscle and expects the nations to squeeze. And yet Augustus is just a puppet on the string. The shots are being called in heaven, not on earth. As the proverb tells us, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The Caesar's decree was God's way of convincing Joseph and his pregnant fiancée to risk the rugged journey to their ancestral home of Bethlehem. The old adage is true. God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. Notice, too, the world's eyes were fixed on Rome, while heaven focused on a peasant couple traveling down the Rift Valley. Caesar dominated the headlines. Joseph and Mary weren't even on a back page of the paper. They weren't even a back page story. It just goes to prove what's important to God isn't always what the world considers newsworthy. A kind act you do, a father's faithfulness, a mother's generosity may not be what gets reported in the AJC, but God sees Here, history's most important event is going to occur in Bethlehem before the gaze of angels, yet not a single reporter or cameraman will be there to cover the story. Verse 4 tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Moms, can you imagine being at full term and then riding a donkey across rocky terrain for 72 straight hours? How many restroom stops would Joseph have to make? (laughs) The rigors of such a journey would trigger Mary's labor, no doubt. And that's why verse 6 tells us, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Hebrew moms wrapped their babies in mummy-like shrouds to simulate the warmth of the womb. Mary bundled up Jesus and laid him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the inn. When the couple arrived in Bethlehem, no one rolled out the red carpet. Doors slammed in their face. Not even the Econa Lodge had a room for the Son of God. Years ago, the ritzy hotels along the New England coastline were prejudiced against Jews. They refused to rent them rooms. One night, a Jewish lady, her name was Mrs. Rosenberg, she was stranded. She saw a hotel sign that read, Vacancy. But when she inquired about a room for the night, the clerk said, Sorry, we're full. Mrs. Rosenberg protested, But what about the sign? It says, Vacancy. Well, the clerk stuttered and stammered until finally he admitted. He said, Look, we just don't rent to Jews. That's when Mrs. Rosenberg said, But I've converted to Christianity. Well, the man didn't believe her, so he decided to give her a test. He asked her, he said, well, why do Christians celebrate Christmas? Mrs. Rosenberg said, it's Jesus' birthday. Still, he didn't believe her. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Well, where did they lay him? In a manger. Okay, why did they lay him in the manger? By this point, Mrs. Rosenberg, she was so frustrated, she couldn't restrain herself. She blurted out, because a jerk like you wouldn't give a Jewish lady a room for the night. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph and Mary. There was no room in the inn. Imagine this. The king of the universe, the hope of the ages, the savior of all mankind, couldn't find a room for the night. On the night of his birth, there was no place for Jesus. And why were there no rooms in Bethlehem? Well, I suppose the inns were too full. Bethlehem was a tiny place. It wasn't prepared for the influx of visitors. And yet special arrangements could have been made. I mean, this was a unique situation. A woman was in labor. She was giving birth for crying out loud. Yet that led to another problem. The proprietors were too busy. Perhaps the inns were understaffed. And yet surely someone should have seen the need. Why didn't a visitor forego a room for a mom in labor? Was everyone too selfish? I imagine everyone had excuses that night. Well, we worked hard all day too. We traveled a long distance. We were tired as well. We deserved a bed as much as the next guy. You know, Jesus no longer needs a hotel room. Today he looks for room in human hearts. And yet tragically, the same problems exist. And for the same reasons as that first Christmas, we also are too full and too busy and often too selfish. For one, our hearts are too full. Too full of stuff, of earthly stuff, of material stuff. There's no room left for Jesus. Our attention is full. Our appetites are glutted. Once I heard of a couple in Boston who invited their friends over to their infant's christening party. The baby was fast asleep. No one saw him on the bed in the dark room as they tossed down their coats. Tragically, when mom went to wake up the baby, she found him suffocated under a mountain of coats. And isn't that what happens to our love for Jesus at Christmas time? Sometimes it gets smothered under a mound of other stuff, of fun and festivities. Jesus is left out because we're too full. But we're also too busy. Christmas time overflows with activities, and often there's no time left for us to worship Jesus. 
In the 1500s, there was a monastery in London named Mary of Bethlehem. It specialized in the care of mentally ill patients. Later, it was turned into a city-owned insane asylum. And its name was shortened from Bethlehem to Bedlam. Eventually, the English word Bedlam was defined by its association with this insane asylum. Bedlam came to mean noise and confusion and chaos. And again, this is what happens to us at Christmas. There's so much bedlam, so much noise and busyness in our lives, we fail to slow down and focus. Our bedlam crowds out our worship. And the third way Jesus gets left out of Christmas is we get too selfish. We focus only on ourselves. We leave no room for anything other than our desires and conveniences. Hey, Joseph knocked on every hotel door in Bethlehem looking for a room, and every door slammed shut in his face. And Jesus is still knocking on doors. Revelation 3 verse 20 tells us that Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks. And this is a startling picture, for it means that Jesus is outside of his church wanting to get in. Imagine the Lord left out of his own church. Reminds me of a quote by author Dorothy Day. It is no use saying that we were born 2,000 years too late to give room to Christ. Nor will those who live at the end of the world have been born too late. Christ is always with us. Always asking for room in our hearts. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? There was no room in the inn, but Joseph found room in a stable. We usually think of a stable as a big red barn on a picturesque horse farm, all warm and cozy. It's built to protect the animals from the bite of winter. But this shelter is not what you would imagine as a stable. The shelter, the stable in Bethlehem was probably a cave on the outskirts of town, cold and wet and damp. It stunk from the stench of manure. Its walls would have been covered with the soot from various campfires. Jeffrey Bull once visited an Oriental inn, and he describes the stable he found in the back. He says, as I walked into the stable to feed the horses and mules, my boots squashed in the manure and straw. A horrible smell of the animals was nauseating. And I thought, to think Christ came all the way from heaven to some wretched eastern stable, and what is more, he came for me. It is indeed a sobering thought. Each year at Christmas we sing, away in a manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Says who? Seriously. The cattle are lowing? Are you kidding me? More likely the sheep were bleating and the cows were mooing, probably disturbed by the strangers who had invaded their space. And what about the baby? No crying he makes? You sure? I've witnessed the birth of four babies now, and they all screamed bloody murder when they came into this world. It's healthy for a newborn to cry. It clears out the lungs. I'm certain Jesus cried. And then Mary put her baby away in a manger. A manger was a dirty, fly-infested, saliva-stained feed trough. 
And I never knew it until I went to Israel that Middle Eastern feed troughs aren't made from wood in line with hay. They're cut out of stones. They're hard beds. Notice, too, there were no doctors or midwives or childbirth instructors at Jesus' birth. Joseph was there, but I'm sure he wasn't much help. He was a carp- He was a husband, and he was a carpenter, no less. Usually in ancient times, the birth of a baby was a family affair. Grandma and moms and aunts and sisters would all gather to lend expertise. But on this occasion, Mary had no one. G. Campbell Morgan, he writes this, Oh, the pity of it, the tragedy of it, the loneliness of it, that in that hour of all hours, when womanhood should be surrounded by the tenderest care, Mary was alone. The method of the writer is very distinct. Mary, with her own hands, wrapped the baby round with those swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. There was no one to do it for her. The first Christmas was a lonely experience for Mary. She navigated it only with the help she got from God. And then verse 8 tells us, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And this verse is why many scholars conclude that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th or at any other time in midwinter. Usually from late October until early April, Jerusalem is too cold for the sheep to be out in the fields at night. The sheep are brought into shelters. I've been to the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem in late November. When I was there, the weather was quite warm. It could have been a warm winter for Jesus' birth, but we're not sure. When it comes to God's incarnation, the Bible doesn't tell us when the miracle took place, only that it did. For me, December 25th is as good a day as any to celebrate. There is, though, a tradition that insists that these particular shepherds weren't just tending ordinary flocks. They oversaw temple sheep used for sacrifice. You see, the fields of Bethlehem are just a few miles south of the temple there in Jerusalem. This provides an interesting detail. The fact that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes. You remember the temple sacrifices had to be flawless. They had to be spotless. No bruises, no broken bones. So whenever a sacrificial lamb was born, it was right wrapped tightly in protective clothing to shelter it from injury. Mary protected her baby the exact same way. In a sense, Jesus was a member of these sacrificial flocks. He would be the Lamb of God that would end all sacrifices. It was appropriate that the news of his birth was first announced to these temple shepherds. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Not just to Jews, but to all people. Jesus is for every human heart. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As Savior, He forgives us. As Messiah, or Christ, He leads us to victory, and as Lord, He rules and calls the shots in our lives. I hope He's all three to you. And this will be a sign to you. 
you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and I hate to disappoint you here, but the angels are saying, not singing, one of my favorite Christmas carols is, Hark the herald angels sing, but it's not accurate. The angels say, they don't sing. For your information, only twice in Scripture do angels sing. Job 38, verse 7, At the creation, the angels sang for joy. And at the end of time, Revelation 5, verse 8, The angels join with the redeemed around God's throne and sing praise to the Lamb. It's interesting, angels sing in the beginning and they'll sing in the end. But while we remain in this fallen state, their lips don't sing. Yet here they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it always inspires me that angels appeared to shepherds. For these shepherds were some really shady characters. See, shepherds were held in such contempt within Hebrew society that their testimony wasn't admissible in a court of law. No one trusted a shepherd. When shepherds came to town, the storekeepers were told to lock up. Hide your, your goods. Make sure the lawnmowers are all inside the lows. The police were put on alert. Well, you didn't like it when shepherds came into town. Yet God's peace and goodwill first came to the worst of people. Imagine the light of God came to shady shepherds. This means there's hope for folks like us. When we think of the angelic announcement, we usually do so from the shepherd's perspective, looking up. But imagine the scene through the angel's eyes. Let's say you've been practicing Oh, for a million years or so for this moment. You're one of the angels in the choir. Now the day arrives. The conductor taps his wand. The curtain rolls back. You expect to see thousands of people, all earth's VIPs, kings, dignitaries, and luminaries. Yet all there is before you are a few shepherds. A half dozen grungy, grubby, smelly, sweaty shepherds? What a letdown. You know, when I think of the real Christmas story, it's not a script that any of us would have written. Peasants for parents, a barn for a birth, shepherds as ambassadors. Yet this was God's way. And I'm glad, for it speaks volumes to us. It shows me that the true God is willing to bear hardships. He knows what it's like to be born on the wrong side of the tracks. He loves even the unlovable. He saves the unhinged. Jesus is the Savior of even shepherds. And then verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds weren't content with hearsay. They wanted to see for themselves. And may this be our attitude. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things 
which were told them by the shepherds. They made the news widely known. And this is the true spirit of Christmas. These good tidings of great joy were to all people. Our job is to spread the news. And Christmas is the time to do so. You know, despite the distractions of the season, the stuff and the busyness and the selfishness we talked about, Christmas is still a time when hearts are soft, when spiritual sensitivities are heightened. You know, people who never think a religious thought any other time of the year often do so at Christmas time. It's been said, our world never comes as close to being in contact with its greatest hope as it does at Christmas. And the Spirit of Christ always takes advantage of the season of Christmas. This is a time for us to make Jesus widely known. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and He can be born in the hearts of all those who willingly put their trust in Him. Let's make Him widely known this Christmas season. And then verse 19, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Notice the two reactions to the Christmas drama. The shepherds shouted it out, and Mary, she mulled it over. The shepherds praised, and Mary pondered. And I believe Christmas is a time for both, praising and pondering. I wonder if Mary kept a baby book for Jesus. You know, we're told she kept all these things in her heart. But I wonder if she saved little mementos from Jesus' childhood or maybe recorded certain events or journaled her thoughts along the way. How far did she go in pondering these things? She certainly was a primary source for Luke's gospel. I'm sure we have Mary to thank for the rest of the story. Verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You know, it's a fact of modern medicine that a newborn boy lacks vitamin K, which is the vitamin that provides our blood its clotting abilities. Doctors say it takes around eight days for a baby's blood to coagulate. Today, when a baby boy is circumcised, he's injected with a dose of vitamin K to help with the recovery. Apparently, God knew this long before modern science. The law of Moses required that every baby boy should not be circumcised until the eighth day. And at Jesus' circumcision, he was given the name ordained by the angel who spoke earlier to Joseph. He was called Jesus, or Jehovah is salvation. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. Besides circumcision, the Mosaic law had Hebrew couples observe two more ceremonies. The mother's purification and the payment of the redemption price. Purification required a sacrifice, a lamb, unless you couldn't afford one. Then you opted for the turtle doves or pigeons. The birds were the poor man's exception. And apparently, 
Since that's what Joseph and Mary offered to the Lord, they must have qualified as paupers. But while they were in the temple, the couple, they run into two Israeli senior citizens. The first we find in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is a title for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christos is the Greek for Messiah. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, the Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the old man Simeon, he quoted what most Jews at the time didn't. Isaiah 52 verse 10. He understood Messiah would not only be a light to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And once Simeon saw that light, he was ready to close his eyes for a final time. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And I'm sure they did. But the old man wasn't through. Verse 34. For then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Notice Simeon makes a fourfold prediction of Jesus. First, Jesus will be pivotal. All humans will rise or fall based on their reaction to him. Second, Jesus will be persecuted. He's a sign which will be spoken against. Third, he'll cause pain, especially for Mary. Verse 35, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon predicts the heartbreak Mary will feel later as she watches Jesus bleed and die on a Roman cross. She was blessed and highly favored, but it didn't shelter her from pain. And then fourth, Jesus will peel off the facades and remove the masks. Simeon says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. All our real and rawest thoughts get exposed before the Lord Jesus. Simeon could see that Jesus will be pivotal and persecuted. His life will cause his mother pain and he'll peel back the real intentions of every man, put it all together, and Mary's boy will be a force to reckon with. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Anna had been married for seven years, but that had been 84 years ago. The earliest a Jewish woman could marry was 13, which would have made her at least 
104. And instead of remarrying, Anna had chosen to give herself totally to God. She resided there in the temple. And she performed a wide range of chores for the priests. And like a lot of older folks, Anna had a bucket list. You know, it's things she wanted to do before she kicked the bucket. But it was a short list. There was really only one thing she wanted to see, and that was the Messiah. For verse 38 tells us, And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And you have to wonder, what was it like for Mary and Joseph to parent Almighty God? How do you parent God? In fact, in his book, God Came Near, author Max Licato, he does a great job trying to answer that question. He has a chapter entitled, 25 Questions for Mary. Here are a few that he hopes to one day ask her. When Jesus saw a rainbow... Did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? How did Jesus act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever catch Jesus gazing at the flesh on his arm while holding a clot of dirt? And did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? What growing up was like for Jesus, we're not sure. Surely he was taught the Bible from an early age. He also learned to trade. Jesus followed in Joseph, his foster father's footsteps. He became a carpenter. Though Nazareth was a tiny town, it sat at the crossroads of three major trade routes. That meant that strangers in town exposed Jesus to different people and different cultures. In addition, Nazareth sat just across the valley, only four miles southeast of a town called Zephorus, which was the summer retreat for the Jewish Sanhedrin. Tradition tells us that Zephorus was the town where Mary had spent her childhood. Perhaps she had relatives in Zephorus and visited them often. Joseph and Jesus may have found carpentry work in this bustling town. It's possible that in the city's synagogue, the boy Jesus could have been taught by the most brilliant minds in Judaism. Verse 40 records what Luke does tell us about Jesus' early development. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, And the grace of God was upon him. He exhibited spiritual strength, a keen discernment. It was obvious from a very early age that the hand of God was upon Jesus' life. We're also told that his parents kept the Mosaic law. They were devout Jews. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And this was a requirement for all Jewish males 20 years old and older. Now, while Luke doesn't tell us more about Jesus' early childhood, we're not sure. But he does close this chapter with an event 
from Jesus' early life that he chose probably because it seemed indicative of Jesus' childhood in general. Verse 42 begins, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now before you report Joseph and Mary to defects for losing their child, understand a Jewish pilgrimage. Families traveled together in caravans. The women would be in front. The boys and the men would be in the rear. Mary thought Joseph had him. Joseph thought Mary had him. It can happen. And they didn't realize their mistake until they stopped that night to camp. Quickly, they returned to Jerusalem to retrieve their son. And now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Jesus was just 12 years old, yet he was quizzing the Jewish scholars, perhaps some of those that he had met in Zephorus. Imagine Jesus on an episode of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? (laughs) Jesus was just 12 years old. Hey, we would have dismissed him a few minutes earlier to the middle school class. But his grasp of the scripture astonished even the rabbis. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus had been attending to heavenly business. And here's our question. In whose business are we embroiled? Are we so wrapped up in our own stuff that we've neglected to be about the Lord's business? I hope not. Verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Imagine, the sovereign God submitted to a parent's authority. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Obviously, Luke included this story to show us that even at 12 years old, Jesus had a sense of who he was and what he had come into the world to do. In John 8, verse 29, he'll later say, I always do those things that please the Father. That was true of Jesus throughout his entire life. And then verse 51, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Notice, Jesus grew in four ways. In wisdom, intellectually. In stature, physically. In favor with God, spiritually, and in favor with men, socially. And here's a model for parents who want to provide their child a balanced upbringing. Are your children growing in all four ways? Intellectually, and physically, and spiritually, and socially, in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with men. 